and welcome to this latest edition of the FT Advisor podcast. I'm David Thorpe, Investment Editor at FT Advisor. Today, we are discussing the question around income investing at a time of higher inflation and economic uncertainty. And joining me today to discuss that topic are Alex Crook, Head of Equities EMEA and Manager of the Bankers Investment Trust at Janice Henderson, Eugene Philalethes, Head of Multi-Asset Investment Management for Europe at Fidelity International, and Charlie Parker, Managing Director at Albemarle Street Partners. Thank you all for joining me today. Charlie, if we start with you, does one need to think differently about building an income portfolio when inflation is exceptionally high? Well, I think the return of inflation after more than a decade where we felt like it had gone away forever changes everything, really. It changes which asset classes work, where the leadership comes from. It changes where you can go for protection in a crisis, what provides portfolio insurance and what doesn't. Of course, for multi-asset income investors, in one sense, it's helpful because it forces interest rates up and it means that lower risk assets can, for the first time in a very long time, provide us with some strong yields. But it also moves radically the leadership between equity sectors of what works and what doesn't work. So it's the shaking of the kaleidoscope and it affects every single aspect of every multi-asset portfolio. Thank you. Alex, as a <coughs> equity manager, and it, not just an equity manager, but understand your trust has a long number of consecutive years of dividend increases. I'm sure you'll uh, remind us all in a minute or two how many years that is. But um, in that context, how do you think about um income and delivering a dividend in a, in a world where inflation is, is, is much higher. Yes, we're 54 years of consecutive dividend growth, so it's, it's quite a long record. I think that the key for me is often investors think very short term. They're sort of looking at the, the current rate of, uh, of inflation or the current uh, interest rate. And, and really, you need to stretch your horizon out when you're making um, longer term investments. And so to my mind, yes, inflation was very high, 21, 22, but it is falling. It is forecast to keep falling. Uh, and we may find interest rates rising a couple more, you know, half a percent or something. But then beginning, I think, in 18 months' time, we'll see them much lower than this point. So I think the key for me with equities is equities are real assets. They are sort of more attuned to what we call the nominal growth of the economy, so GDP plus inflation. And actually, over longer-term history, 20, 30 years, you do find dividends from equities outperform inflation. It's just in these shorter periods when you're looking at 10 or so inflation. Yes, they're lagging a bit of that, but actually they're catching up. We're seeing very good uh, dividend growth coming from a wide uh, number of sectors. Um, and actually, I think by the end of 23, we should see that dividend growth above inflation again. Eugene, um, as a multi-asset investor at Fidelity, you can obviously go across the uh, the, the entire asset class uh, spectrum. Yeah. Has higher inflation caused you to move materially away from or towards any particular part of the the universe? I mean, high inflation does create challenges for investors. And, you know, we've been in an environment of uh, low and falling inflation for, you know, uh, three decades, let's say. And um, it is one of the hardest variables to actually manage against in terms of matching or, or, or meeting inflation. There are asset classes longer term that can match uh, inflation. There's a, a study that shows that over 3,000 years, gold has exactly matched inflation in, in certain uh, areas. So none of us have that time, that sort of time horizon. But clearly, it's, a, it's an environment where we've seen 
we've gone from low inflation to higher inflation, and that creates both a repricing of uh, asset classes on the you know, on the interest rate side. We're seeing uh, defensive assets now offering an income for for the first time in, in a long time, but also um, you know as already mentioned, we've seen a change in the. Um, you know, in the leadership in terms of which sectors are, are, are doing better. But I think one of the most important things, though, is that it changes the, um, the relationship between asset classes as well. So you get a higher correlation between uh, bonds and equities in a higher inflation environment than you do in a low inflation environment. So that nice diversification you got uh, for, between equities and bonds really is, I think, a structural shift where that the role of bonds in a, in a portfolio does does change, and when you're thinking about what is a defensive asset now, uh, you need to think about it in a, in a different way. And so I think those challenges, you know, for investors, for for investors like us and for our clients, are real. And you know, we need to think about where we can get you know real types of uh, income streams, uh, real assets. Uh, but we still think. The, the approach does work, a multi-asset approach does work and can offer a long-term solution. So you need to think longer term rather than just, you know, what is the latest inflation reading and think about where inflation will go and, and settle over the next uh, few years. Thank you. And we, we'll uh, stick with you, Eugene, for the for the next question. Many uh, clients out there who have income as a priority are those at or, or near uh, retirement. But as people now typically spend longer in retirement than was in the past, perhaps 30 years rather than 10, does an income portfolio need to contain more growth type assets? Is there scope for there to be more assets that maybe don't pay a particularly wonderful uh, income? I think an income fund uh, is a you know is a uh, component of a you know a, a um, sort of a holistic retirement solution, uh, which can include you know other factors as well. I think the key attributes that we should be looking at are. Uh, an attractive level of income, first of all, and, you know, um, and it should be sustainable over the long term. So we think that paying out of natural income, so uh, coupons from bonds and dividends from equities is is the right way. But also within that, you should be quite defensive and, uh, you know, f- have a focus on capital preservation um, because uh, in the long term, uh, drawdowns, so, you know, uh, falling values from uh, from uh, from your portfolio can mean that you are taking income out and and possibly eroding capital uh, over time. So we think that you know, um, you know the um, an income portfolio, depending on what your time horizon is, what your you know what your mix of assets is, uh, what your risk appetite is, can include uh, you know a, a different mix of. Uh, equities or growth assets uh, compared to, compared to bonds, and especially in the, in an environment uh, as we are now, where we think inflation will be higher than it has been over the last ten years, um, the real element of uh, the income from equities we think is going to be quite important for for income investors over the long term. Thank you. Um, and Alex, with your investment trust manager hat on, um, have you been thinking about that question of? Uh, a greater, uh, relatively greater focus on on the growth bit on on capital appreciation. I know that I'm sure for many of the uh, many investment trust investors out there do look at products such as yours and others run by other houses that have that dividend record, and and that's maybe something of a USP. But do you also increasingly need to think about capital growth? 
Yes, I think you always buy an equity for a combination of, of capital growth, appreciation in, in the share price or whatever that may, and also the income it generates over, over your holding period. So I think you've got to think in both terms. And obviously, you can skew it both ways. You can own nothing but technology stocks that don't yield anything. You can skew it to a utility fund or something which is predominantly just paying out income. But I think, to my mind, a lot of investors who retire – you know, sorry, retirees who, who want to invest really think often are, are too cautious. They need to think, look, they're probably 10 to 20 years of retirement. You need an element of growth. And therefore, in that sense, I think you can afford to sell a bit of capital to supplement your income. So don't reach too high. You know, I think once you get over sort of four and a half, five percent dividend yields on an equity, you, you're really struggling to get any growth out of it. And there are chances that it gets cut in time. So I, I was always think the sweet spot's about three or four percent yield. I think there's room in there to sell 1% or 2% of your capital over time um, and supplement that. And a lot of funds do. If you go and dig a bit deeper into funds, investment trusts as well, you do find they supplement their income with an element of, of cap- selling capital, supporting that dividend. Thank you. Charlie, I'm sure Albert has many clients who are at or near uh, retirement. And how, how do you think about that question? Has the conversation changed around needing to have things in there that aren't, that aren't necessarily divvy payers? Yeah, I mean, I, I completely endorse the sentiment that you need some natural yield. And I think that that is something which is actually kind of more controversial than it sounds, because there's a lot of people going around the country talking to financial advisors saying, don't think about yield. It's all about total return. That's the only thing that matters. It's not true. And it's not true if you read any of the literature. And there's a huge literature around how to make the most of someone's pot in retirement. Actuaries have been studying this for 100 years. We've come to it quite recently when pensions freedoms arrived. But there's enormous literature on it. And what it says, in essence, is you want over the lifetime of somebody in drawdown to create as few situations as possible where somebody is having to sell their asset in order to fund their income. Because just statistically, it's likely that some of those times you're going to be selling it when you really, really don't want to and cause pound cost ravaging. So you need yield. And and it needs to be asserted that yield is an important part of maximising what somebody can get out of their retirement pot and limiting pound cost ravaging. Um, The other kind of key thing, I mean, yes, that needs to grow. Yes, you need the equity risk premium to be absolutely embedded um, within the retirement strategy. Strategy. The other crucial thing is to really think about the first few years that somebody is in drawdown, particularly if they've got, you know, maybe a life expectancy of another 30 years, because the risk from the longevity risk in those first few years is absolutely profound. Um, if you imagine somebody who retired in the year 2000 and took out a 4% income from a pot of equity income shares, they, they did that just before the tech crash. There was obviously a big fall. Um, they, they would never have got back their initial investment investment over their 30-year time horizon. Compare that to someone who retired in 1990. They could have taken all of that money out and they'd have ended up with millions of pounds at the point that they, they passed away to pass on. So if you like, the luck of the moment you retire is a massive driver. You have to protect people when longevity risk is its highest. You have to provide them with the equity risk premium for most of it. And you have to do whatever you can to minimise the number of times they're having to make bad sell decisions throughout that, that period. Thank you. Um, turning to equity allocation, so we'll make Alex wait third for that one. Um, Eugene, um, how do you think about diversifying the sources of income within specifically the equity allocation? Yeah, I think, uh, you know, the 
for our clients in the UK, the the natural starting point is is UK equities. Um, you know, for for income, it's been long, you know, standing, you know, stable for its uh, you know its high quality of income that that uh, that it's delivered over years, and it is one of the highest yielding markets uh, that that you can find. So that's been a you know a natural um, you know a natural place for for income investors. However. Uh, that does also, you know, being uh, allocated in one market brings with it, you know, specific, uh, you know, exposure to economic scenarios, significant, you know, sector um, biases, but also, you know, style biases within equities, which means that there are long periods of time that it uh, that it doesn't work. So we believe that, you know, reducing that home bias and, and having a global approach uh, really does increase your opportunities, increases your flexibility as well to, to generate, uh, you know, a, an attractive level of income that's more, that's more stable, but also, you know, um, generate returns that are, that are more, um, that are more favorable. You know, sterling is an important part. Sterling is a, what we call a pro-cyclical currency. I, when, when equity markets are weak, when volatility picks up in markets, sterling tends to weaken. So having, uh, non-sterling assets in your, in your portfolio actually, um, you know, can reduce your losses because of the, the weakness of, of, of sterling that, and, and the way it tends to behave. Um, so, you know, we think, you know, looking at areas like, uh, you know, Europe, obviously clo- close to home, uh, that offers an attractive level of income, but also Asia. Uh, we think Asia over time has moved from being a market that's very retail dominated uh, to one that is more um, institutional. And to attract those institutional investors, uh, companies there have, you know, uh, got the, you know, the dividend um uh, you know, bug, and they are offering you know uh, better returns to shareholders through you know uh, return of um, uh, sort of higher dividends, and because of the you know the average quality of balance sheets, which is quite good there, you are um, seeing attractive dividends with um, you know low payout ratios. So there is some resilience there to to changing earnings and to changing uh, economic uh, conditions. So I think you know. Being able to go global does offer you a number of opportunities as an investor to, um, you know, to improve the quality and stability of your income uh, and your and your long term returns as well. Thank you, um, Charlie. How do you how do you think think about that? I mean, there's the, I suppose, rather simplistic view that you know uh, value value equities pay pay dividends and, and growth ones pay less attractive dividends. But then you're taking a huge sector or factor risk. I know. Uh, factors and how they perform is something that you've uh, you've thought about uh, quite a lot. But in the context of a diversified mm. income portfolio, how important are those things and other other things that you think? Yeah, about? we we I mean we do think more about how we balance our factor risk than we balance our geographic risk. Albeit going global, allocating to different parts of the world naturally has the effect of balancing your factor risk. It reduces your dependency on sectors like financials, which might have good dividends, might be valued, but also have other. Uh, you know, important characteristics. I think one thing we would add is that you have to think holistically. If your goal is to deliver, you know, for an income investor, hopefully most of the upside that a growth investor
investor is going to get. But eliminating some of you know, what we would call the left tail risk, eliminating some of the risk of big drawdown moments that could really impact on 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 the the utility of their pot uh, in drawdown because it could it could force them into pound cost ravaging. One of the things that naturally does is it forces you into risky asset classes, but asset classes that are slightly less risky than equities. It forces you into high yield assets, into infrastructure, into things that will give you most of the upside, but not all of the upside of equities with a bit less of the downside. So what you see in our income allocations is is leaning on those kind of medium risk asset classes, them taking a bigger share of the risk budget to just introduce a bit of long term stability um, into portfolios. And I think that the other thing just to say about income asset allocation is that the last year caught an awful lot of people out. And it caught them out because they believed that when times were tough, you bought bonds, and that you bought longer duration bonds if you wanted more protection. Uh, And of course, that is not true in an inflationary shock, you need short duration bonds. But in a deflationary shock, you need longer duration bonds. And I think one of the things that has really shocked people is that the places where you go for protection changes when the inflationary environment changes. And you really do need a framework for understanding that duration. It's in fixed income. Duration is also in equities. Value is kind of short duration and growth is long duration. And you need a coherent way to think about all of these things uh, if you're going to protect income investors from drawdowns. Thank you, Charlie. And Alex, uh, your your uh, trust is is a global trust, but how do you think about diversification within that? Is it a, a geographical consideration? Is it is it factor? Is it something else? It's a bit of a bit of all of that, really. I mean, currency is also important. We've seen you know sterling over the you know since Brexit, let's say, been very weak. You know, again, my most of my investors are sterling based, so thinking of that in their sense, you know, trying to get. Uh, money both abroad for for better growth, uh, better diversification as well has worked actually very well. Um, UK market though has has actually had you know, surprises all in the last eighteen months or something and been been pretty good. But I think you know when I'm looking at things, you know I'm looking for that combination of of growth and and capital performance, so reasonable valuations. Um, it always keeps dragging you back to the US. It, it has been a market that's delivered both of those. Um, from a low yield, though, so if you're looking for absolute yield, it's it's probably been a, a challenging place to go. Um, you know, I think one area we we always highlight. I hear the the words about Asia. Asia has actually been over the last decade or so really a really sweet spot for both income, you know, absolute income and and growth. I'd also have a look at Japan as well on a, a left field. It it is changing. Corporate governance improving. Uh, relatively low payout ratios. So the amount of their earnings that they pay out is much lower than other regions, but is rising. So you're getting an extra kicker on top of the earnings growth there. Uh, and corporate governance improving, you know, trying to improve shareholder returns as well, kicking in. So it's an area, I think, again, over the longer term, it's had short-term good performance is very interesting. Um, but ultimately, what I'm always looking for and the danger for an investor in, in companies, and particularly for income, is always leverage. So, you know, you, there are a lot of infrastructure funds and some very interesting ones. They do have some inflation hedging in there. But I have always caution, you know, may be careful how much leverage, how much gearing, borrowings they've got, particularly in this you know, current cycle where we're seeing the cost of those borrowings and refinancing rising. So I think, again, there's some good ones, but, but be careful of some of the more highly geared. Thank you, and Alex, we'll we'll uh, we'll we'll stay with you for for the next question. How do you think about the traditional equity income type sectors? Charlie referred to one of them, which is which is banks, but you also have oil, mining, maybe utilities. Um, they've done their job, I suppose, as an income as a source of dividends over the past eighteen months or so. But structurally, 
in a portfolio? Do they deserve the same place they they always did? If you if you look at you know mining and oil, well, there's environmental considerations. People trying to move away from those. With with banks, you have let's politely call it regulatory risk. Um, is it structurally time to think differently about those things? So, so a great starting point for, for your listeners is the Janus Henderson Global Dividend Index. This is something um, I started in 2010. Um, we look at 1,200 different companies around the world, and we track over time, so if we go back to 2009, their dividends and the growth of, of the income off those sectors. So it's a great starting point to have a little bit look of over a meaningful time period now, sort of 14 years, where the best places were for optimising your growth income. And the worst ones are some of the sectors you mentioned. It tends to be regulation because the regulators um, you know, tend to depress and, and where leverage has been at play. So communications, telecoms, utilities have been relatively poor. And oil. Oil has been really difficult until the last couple of years or so, 18 months. But generally it's flattered to, to deceive, really. I think where the sweet spot, obviously, right at the top is technology. Technology, but from a really low base. So we've had you know, companies like Microsoft, Apple, growing dividends very sharply, but from a low place. The sweeter spot, I think, for a mixture of the two um, is financials. I, I do think the next 10 years, yes, regulation is going to continue to play a part, but actually banks you know, will want to keep a, a quite a large amount of equity uh, in their business. They won't want to retire that equity, so I don't see share buybacks coming in. I think, therefore, special dividends dividends is likely to be your return of, of income, and they're getting safer than they were 10, 20 years ago with more equity. The other area is consumer discretionary has always been a a great area that the longer-term big consumer names have always been good dividend growers. And then finally, pharmaceuticals has been, I think, is your you know, surprise package where, again, they've, they've tended to spend a lot on R- R&D. I think they're, they're bet- more interestingly managed now with, this, with looking at investor returns are important to them as well as growing their business. So I think those would be the three areas I, I would look at. Thank you. Um, Charlie, how do you uh, think about that, that question? Those sectors, you know, you mentioned earlier somebody who retired in 1990. If somebody did that, you would have said, buy some banks. Buy, buy the oil company you like, the bank you like, the miner you like. You're most of the way there to a, to a 5% yield. No one would have called that a high-risk portfolio. Maybe, maybe the risk profile of it has changed now. But has the structural story around those kind of sectors changed? So I think that you know, companies are cheap for a reason. And there are certain environments where you need companies that have some cheapness associated with them in order to deliver performance. Uh, And in particular, I'm thinking of periods where inflation expectations is growing significantly. One reason why the UK market did very well last year, it is more of a value market compared to other markets. So I certainly don't think we should dismiss industries that have got challenges uh, as long as it is reflected in the price and as long as there are dislocations that an active investor can harness. I mean, financials is a great example. in the COVID pandemic, they were effectively blocked from paying dividends. So unless you believe that was going to carry on forever, you had an obvious dislocation to to harness. So, you know, we, we think you should look at all of these things and you shouldn't assume that the natural state of the world is growth companies always outperforming. We believe they outperform because there was a supportive macro environment that came from low interest rates and, uh, and low inflation. 
you know, and I think with financials in particular, it's worth making the point that regulation will always press down on them. But there is a limit to what regulators can do. Regulators require the global financial system and the global banking system to operate. And when they push it to a limit, they have to stop. That's what happened in Europe during the Eurozone crisis, where they pushed rates so low that they started to see bits of the banking system crack in Italy in particular, and they had to stop. And that, I think, will continue to be the case. So we shouldn't see it as a kind of interminable process that eventually breaks the banking system. They, they can't do that. They push it so far and then they step back. And, and for that reason, we think financials you know, will always have um, some intrinsic value. They're going to have to spend a lot of money, the big banks, buying fintechs to keep up. But ultimately, we think they've probably got the cash to, to do that and survive. Thank you. And Eugene, how do, how do you think think about about that? I, I don't know. Do you allocate the funds? Do you allocate the individual equities? But when, when you're doing it, do you, do you look through at the underlying equity exposure and look at those sectors and view them as a positive or a negative? Uh, yeah, unfortunately, I'm going to agree with uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, my colleagues at the, at the, at the table. Uh, we do think that financials are actually a, an attractive place to generate uh, income. Uh, and we are looking at European and, and, and Japanese banks. I mean, uh, you know, when we think about Europe, um, we you know, Europe might not have the uh, semiconductor, um, you know, uh, lead as, uh, you know, the US or, or Asia does. Uh, we might not have natural resources, but boy, do we have regulation. And we have regulated the banks to the point where they are, I think, in a very good position. So what we've seen in the US in terms of the regional banking uh, issues is unlikely to, to repeat mm. here. And banks are now paying, uh, you know, uh, you know, a much higher dividend relative to the to the rest of the of the European market, and has have the ability to grow that dividend as well, especially now that their capital position is much more um, is much healthier. Uh, Japanese banks as well, you know, a very similar situation. So, we think that those two sectors are you know are areas that we uh, that we like. On the oil side, we have been uh, investors in oil uh, stocks for for quite a long time, and. There's, you know, there are uh, sort of ESG and sustainability considerations here, and we think from an engagement perspective, you need to engage with these companies in order to, you know, to help that energy transition and move from, you know, a heavily uh, fossil fuel dominated um, in, um, economy to one that is more sustainable and more, uh, you know, and more environmentally conscious. Um, but also, we are in an environment where you know oil companies haven't made any new investments uh, for a long time. The the product that they sell, the energy product they sell, is you know at, is at a decent price, and so they're generating a lot of cash. So coming back to that question about you know, um, you know particular sectors or, or value stocks that that you know are you know undervalued, have that uh, support, but also are generating a lot of cash that return of capital to shareholders coming through dividends or buybacks is you know is, is attractive for us it's not that we would be structurally you know allocated to these sectors but you know where we um you know where we see opportunities uh, within our investment framework that you know those companies uh, look look very attractive and last year was was the right year to own them you know just given the environment that, that we were in so yeah i think it is um you know, there are you know um places for these companies in portfolios, but they might not be as, uh, you know, they're not a sort of a structural or permanent feature, and they are based on, you know, where we see the uh, the current opportunities. Thank you. Um, and 
Alex as a global equity manager. It's been referenced around the table a couple of times that the UK is is really viewed as a as an equity income market now rather than a rather than necessarily a place to go if you want if you want the highest highest growth. But also, as you mentioned, the UK's surprised everyone by performing quite well in the last eighteen months or so. What's your allocation like there in, in the Bankers Investment Trust? Yeah, we're still around about um, fifty, well, sixteen percent or so. So, so relatively high compared to its its sort of proportion of global mm-hmm. equities, and that was fundamentally on a sort of valuation case. We just thought it got too cheap. It was it was deeply unloved as a, from a global investor's point of view. Nobody really wanted to allocate there for politics, mm-hmm. <laughs> economy, growth, uh, you know, currency, all sorts of things. Some of those have improved. Some some haven't. Let me say and. Uh, it strikes me as sort of fair value here. I mean, the ten-year, you know, gilt yield is about four point two or something. If you, you know, the yield on the equity is three point seven, um, so roughly, you know, over that ten years, you need three percent growth in your dividends to sort of match that ten. It feels about the right level. Um, whereas I see better value in in some other markets. So we're reducing UK. It's also fundamentally a sort of. Um, you know, a difficult market because it's very heavily allocated to certain sectors. So when you're buying it as a sort of tracker fund or a sort of UK allocation, you, you tend to get a lot of allocation to some sectors maybe you don't want over the long term. You know, oil is something we've, we've slightly touched on, but I, I do worry an oil sector is a bit like sort of tobacco of the future, you know, whereas, okay, it throws off cash, but but my goodness, what, what rating do you want to put on it as a sector that people increasingly don't want to be invested in? Um, and we're seeing also banks sort of stopping lending to the the energy sector as well. So I I think, you know, all those overweigh, yes, it looks an attractive yield, but goodness me, are you going to see your your capital there just shrink away as you have in tobacco stocks? So, you know, I think you could be careful, but there's still great stocks in the UK and and you can dig around and find pretty good value. uh, And I still think it's pretty unloved from a global point of view. Thank you. Charlie, how do you think about um, the the UK? UK. Yeah, I think that um, in a way I see this as as quite an important turning point for the UK. You know, since 2016, we've had a political environment where our leaders have been testing various premises with the global markets. They've been, you know, is it possible for us That's to That's a just, polite way to Yeah, it. well, is it, can we spend as much money as we want and expect the international bond markets to bail us out because we're Britain? Oh, yeah, we got our answer? No, you can't. We're not going to do that. Uh, can we kind of belligerently uh, leave every free trade block and tell everyone it doesn't matter and we don't care and all the rest of it and get away with it? No, we can't. Um, so we've kind of been through a process of sort of peak British belligerence, I think, because we, we sort of met our comeuppance uh, with the brief trust premiership. And we're now entering a period where both the Labour and the Conservative Party offer a more benign environment for investors going forward. Sunak is trying to rebuild relationships internationally. Uh, he is constraining himself in terms of public spending. The Labour Party on the other on the other side of the argument is itself backing away from any uh, significant spending, did that on, on, on their green commitment just this week. So it does create a more kind of benign environment. And that is crucial for investors in Britain because they need to know that they can sustain changes of governments and maintain this as a good place to do business. So I, I see all of that as, as, as pretty positive and setting up a kind of more supportive environment really for the for the years ahead the good, the good thing about when we do this stuff like like Liz trusted where we sort of throw our toys out of the pram is that we learn our lesson in Britain pretty quickly and a couple of decades go by before we try again so I'm gonna I'm gonna leave it on that optimistic uh, optimistic note <laughs> thank you for that um 
Eugene, um, how, how do you think about UK exposure? Yes, we uh, have a positive view on the UK, which uh, worked very well for us last year. I mean, we have uh, three different funds with different risk profiles, so the allocation you know, varies between 6% and, you know, and, and 12%. Uh, Is that 6% in the lowest risk portfolio or the highest? 6% in the lowest risk portfolio and, and 12% in the highest risk. And it's mainly allocated to the, to the larger cap names, you know, the FTSE 100 names. So it's not really taking a view on the UK economy uh, because the, uh, the the proportion, the percentage of earnings that come from overseas is very high in that uh, in that part of the market. Uh, it is taking more of you on you know, the valuations of the companies, the sectors that they were in, um, and the fact that after years of underperformance, the market had reached a level of valuation that just made it look uh, very attractive. We didn't know what the catalyst was going to be that would help the the market perform relatively better. Uh, but it was, you know, it was higher inflation. It was a stagflationary environment. And when you look back to the, uh, you know, through the history of the UK, it does tend to perform better in, in higher inflation environments and, and higher interest rate environments because of the, of the sector makeup. Um, so, you know, we are. Uh, it has done very well, and so we have been, you know, taking some some. Uh, weight off that uh, that allocation but um yeah we think there's still um in, in terms of the longer term theme and and some of the sort of longer term themes that we see with regards to different sectors and styles performing we think uh, the UK could still do uh, could still do well in that um over the next few years thank you very much for that Eugene Philalethis head of multi asset investment management for Europe at Fidelity International and thank you also to Charlie Parker, Managing Director at Albemarle Street Partners, and Alex Crook, Head of Equities EMEA and Manager of the Bankers Investment Trust at Janice Henderson. And thank you all for listening. Do remember to tune in to future editions of the FT Advisor podcast. Thank you. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to Quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.